Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Theo Edmonds, JD, MHA, MFA. Theo is a co-founder of CU Denver's Imaginator Academy, a cultural analytics, strategy, and futurist innovation hub. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Theo. Theo is a skilled, energetic, cultural futurist and innovator with 25 years of senior level strategic national and international leadership experience spanning the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. As directing co-founder of CU Denver's Imaginator Academy, Theo is a weaver of ideas who scouts global networks of entrepreneurs, companies, scientists, artists, creative innovators, and change makers of all. Welcome to the podcast, Theo, and thank you so much for chatting with me. It's great to be here, Lisa. Well, I'm really excited to have you here, Theo. And and I wanted to start the podcast off by talking a little bit about your very unconventional background that traverses and connects scholarly research with pop culture across scientific disciplines, data analytics, creativity, and cultural well-being. So tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are now. Uh, that's a it's a really interesting question. And uh, when I lived in Kentucky, we would call that a bourbon conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had bourbon right now, but it's uh, too it early in the morning good. for bourbon. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so I think, you know, they, like anybody else, and I, I love how researchers sometimes talk about research is always me search. Uh, so I think my my path is, is definitely that. Um, I believe that human instincts are, are really what drive everything. And so mine were also uh, at play in kind of ending up where I've ended up in life. Uh, growing up, uh, I grew up in a nine-generation uh, southeastern Kentucky family in Appalachia. And I was also, uh, you know, I grew up as a, a, a queer kid and I'm neurodiverse in the, in the kind of 70s and early 80s Appalachia. Um, and when you are growing up in places that are not really designed for you, um, you learn how to do a lot of different things uh, to navigate the world. And so the things that I was doing to navigate navigate the world often uh, kind of for me uh, evolved and revolved around creative endeavors of some kind. I was a highly curious child, and I think that curiosity has been probably one of my uh, one of my um, most foundational um, uh, things that have carried me forward in life, uh, especially as a transdisciplinarian, which I know we'll get into later. But, but that, that curiosity and that creativity drove everything. I I um, I was a professional clogger growing up. Um, and so when you uh, have the opportunity to clog professionally, you get to travel a lot and see a lot of different things. And so uh, on weekends and in summers, I was always going around and, and, and traveling and dancing in places that as far flung as, as Mexico. And I think it was that exposure early on to all of these radically different cultures that I was going and dancing in and getting to experience also the feedback loop of putting a a creative interpretation of something out there and then seeing how different people and different cultures respond to it. That was all very influential uh, on me uh, in my early days. And it's something that I've, I've always paid close attention to. The other thing between that creativity and, and, and the curiosity is sparked from getting to kind of perform it. Um, you know, there's something in, in research called self-determination theory that many may be familiar with. Ryan and DC is the, are the researchers. And kind of the things that, that promote well-being in, in a person are kind of, uh, it's autonomy, 
competence and relatedness. And so that clogging uh, performance uh, background was really now, you know, as a researcher, I know that that was self-determination theory at work that I was experiencing and that curiosity and, and going in and out of those cultures was also developing something called cognitive flexibility, which, um, you know, World Economic Forum now says are one of the top skills for the future of work. So uh, all of these things kind of played into it. But the other thing that that really informed where I am today were, were those early days in southeastern Kentucky. My grandmother was a uh, and my grandfather ran a little uh, country store way out of the rural part of the community. And it, it was literally she was the my grandmother was the postmistress for this tiny little very rural community uh, in in a rural part of the country. Um, and I was so fortunate to grow up in a little um, house next door to that store, that little country store, all my early days. And so I got to experience uh, what the nucleus of belonging in a community felt like uh, from the comings and goings of that. And I, you know, and I watched my grandmother, who is 100, she'll be 104 next month and still lives in southeastern wow. Kentucky. And I got to watch her and my papa respond uh, to uh, their friends and in the community. And they, they, they sensed what they were needing. They sensed what they uh, needed to get done, the things they were trying to get done in life. And it was not a one-size-fits-all answer, but it was that belonging that in community that was fostered around um, this little country store really informed um, so much of, of what I came to value uh, in my life. Yeah. And, and I want to go back to um, the Imaginator Academy that you mentioned briefly. I mean, you've had quite a career that spanned a, a lot of different areas. How did you end up in Denver and, and how did this Imaginator Academy come about? My husband and I, like every everyone else uh, during the two years of COVID, really started taking stock uh, and, and trying to understand what it is that uh, we wanted to do with the time um that we that we have and so as we started thinking about that um he like i am in but in very different ways are again going back to that curiosity piece we're very curious and it's a big big world out there and through the years i had had a lot of friends that have been based in denver i'd done work with the aspen institute a little bit through the years and and one of the things that always struck me a little bit about denver Every time I would go there, whether it be the, you know, the, the legalization of cannabis or they have a, a, an organization there called SCFD, the Science Cultural Financing District, which is a taxpayer funded. So I think it's the second oldest science and cultural financing district in the nation. And, it, and, it, and the taxpayers reauthorize it every so many years. But I, I watched all of these things that I saw happening there that were being talked about in other parts of the country. But was mostly talk in the other parts of the country. There didn't seem to be the social agreements, you know, in different cities to put the things in place that would actually make it happen. And so I saw a city in Denver uh, making those kind of, of social agreements. And I, that that interested me a great deal. Like, what is that all about? Uh, why is that happening? And so as we started thinking about where we wanted to be spending our time, I looked at the polarization of what's happening, you know, nationally right now. And I one thing I was clear about is I wanted to be in a place that seemed like it had taken action on where America as a nation was trying to get to and then be part of that. Uh, uh, ecosystem to try to understand it more from the inside. And so there, you know, there was a handful of places that, that we were considering. Um, and Denver just became kind of uh, the the place uh, of all the places for a lot of different reasons. My husband is a very uh, active uh, outdoor uh, recreation enthusiast. That'll do it. Yep. Colorado is a place to be. It is absolutely the place to be. So all things being equal, that was a that was a really um, compelling uh, final kind of like thing that tipped the decision in Denver's favor. Denver's a very young city comparatively to other cities. It skews 
you know, 34, 35, I think is, is if memory serves is about average. Um, our Hispanic population uh, in Denver is ticks up 30, around 30% or more, which, you know, so there's a lot of things that signal that the, the Gen Z value shifts that are happening, we can get into that if you want to, and what the implications of that, recognizing that no one demographic is a monolith around anything, but um, but there are some trends there that I think are important for us to consider. And so all of the things that we look at at the projections of us becoming as a nation, you know, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, Denver's kind of already there and is beginning to grapple with these things. And so all of that signals to me, like if you're a culture futurist like I am, that is a place that you want to be in the mix with because there's things that will happen there that will be learned and be scaled up down the road. So I think that's a great segue, Theo, because I did want to ask you about culture futurist and what exactly that is and, and what it entails. That's a great question. I get asked that a lot. So there, there's two components there. One is is the culture component. And I think I've talked about that a little bit. So I'll focus for a moment on the on the futurist part first. A futurist is not someone who's trying to necessarily predict the future. I, that is not something I believe anybody can do, although there are people who are building incredible business models around They're their trying to do that. They're trying. A futurist is someone who really pays attention and understands that there is a, uh, a, a timeline uh, that connects past, present, and future in very compelling ways. And in that work, you know, we see that that work. We we tend to talk about folks like um, Faith Popcorn. I think she was probably the maybe the first uh, popularization of the term a few decades ago. But really, the the idea of futurism is not not new. Uh, you know, if you talk to uh, my fr- my friends in for for example in, in some of the in, indigenous communities, you know, they they have their entire uh, kind of orientation is around kind of a, a three, a seven generation model. So anything of your experience in one generation was planted three generations before and the things you do in response to that now will be felt three generations out. So, you know, that is a form of futurism that is not about necessarily around technology or data or any, well, a certain kind of data that we privilege in today's world. Um, so it does require someone to be a transdisciplinarian though. And so what I mean by that is there we're we're coming out of a hundred year old industrial economy that was built upon us having silos of different things. And so for you to uh, succeed in your chosen career, and I'm speaking very much in the American context here, and I want to be be clear on that because We've made we've not made social agreements that other nations have made. So there's not a translation there. But in the American context, these silos, uh, you know, have defined disciplines and they have gatekeepers in place. And if you think about just in the academy, if you want to proceed and progress in your career, it is important for you to go as deep as you can to write papers about that discipline that reinforces the discipline and gatekeepers in the discipline will tell you if your ideas are valuable or not and should be shared with others through journals or symposia and and all kinds of different things. That is an important function, but it's not the only function of society. Because each of those silos, what I've experienced is, you may take three or three different disciplines talking about exactly the same thing and expressing it in entirely different ways and not really understanding that there's a discipline over here that is doing the same kind of work, but in a whole different way. And that's because of these kind of reinforced silos. Margaret Bowden, who uh, is one of the top Uh, was one of my North Stars when it comes to where human creativity in and machine learning computation began. She was starting to write about this stuff back in the 70s, and she's she's still very active um, today. Uh, But she talks about this kind of this discipline gatekeeper model, and she calls it exploratory creativity. And so that's and that's where she puts it, I think, around 80 percent or, or a little bit better of most of our innovations today comes out of that kind of exploratory creativity column, defined discipline and gatekeeper. So if you're talking about something like pharmacological interventions, 
it seems like a pretty good idea for, to me to have a gatekeeper there that says that not, idea you're proposing, though it may be novel, is going to kill a human being. So does it create value? Probably not. And gatekeeper feels good there to me. Yeah, absolutely. However, when you're starting into a, uh, an innovation process in an increasingly pluralist country where you have a lot of opportunities, I would say even say perhaps the most innovation opportunities today lend themselves to be more in a socio-cultural space than as opposed to just an individual discipline space. Who is the gatekeeper then? For all these social innovations type of things that are coming out now. Yeah, because, you know, a, a black lesbian in Appalachia or a single rural mother in Colorado or Mark Zuckerberg in Silicon Valley, from a mechanism standpoint, are asked their lived experience dictates the questions that they're going to ask of whatever data set they're presented to make meaning, create value in their life. And so that's not to say that one should be necessarily maybe uh, more important than the other, but we have for the last 25 years, just looking at the tech space, we have chosen one <laughs> viewpoint of the world and the questions it asks because we've been able to figure out how to monetize that. Uh, and so I think we're entering into a time when this kind of futurism requires this transdisciplinary thinking that looks across all of the different kind of things that are happening out there and then has experience in stacking different data sets that come from different places and and in a and a kind of a, a skill set and an expertise for finding where what's the thread that is uh, coming through all of these different data sets that feels like it, if you if we pulled on that thread that there might be something here that stitches and weaves some of those different sectors together that feels to me like a really powerful place right now and you know that's what as a futurist that's what I I'm also doing is trying to find what that thing is and you know you talk to talk to any um, BIPOC female executive in a corporate space uh, in America in 20, 2022. You talk to uh, folks from the LGBT community who have had to, throughout their entire lives, navigate in and out of dominant cultures that are not their own in order to to get done what they're trying to get to, whether that's career progression, whether that's just putting dinner on the table, whether it's being safe. Yeah, exactly. Right. The military calls it situational awareness. In some ways, there's there's a parallel there. And so those are skill sets that a lot of folks have been forced to acquire for themselves in the America of the last many years. And so it's that's changing now. So the idea around uh, cultural futurism is that we have to expand our aperture beyond just privileging one specific lived experience view of things and try to understand what are the other opportunities that are out there and the people that have the experience and knowing how to navigate um, uh, in a culturally responsive way uh, seems to me that organizations that lean into and understand that really stand to have a, a serious competitive advantage in the marketplace, which is which is why I've, I've been following really closely a lot of the um, ESG work, and I, it's you know it's all over the place depending on who you ask. Is it valuable or is it not? Maybe maybe not. I, I don't want to go into that today, but as I look at that, you know. The governance piece of ESG, that, it's what you can see. You can count it. Um, pretty easy to find, figure out. The environmental piece of ESG, I think, is also pretty clear at this point. And I'll tell you why. Because over the last you know, 50 years, we have put the entire value chain of environmental um, of the environmental piece in place as it relates to supply chain and other kinds of things. So it goes from when you fill up your water bottle at a at a fountain and you see that little counter you're saving this many Big number plastic of plastic bottles. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. All the way up to now we have, you know, federally uh, federal housing developments that are LEED certified. So we've got the value chain in place around our, now whether people lean into that I believe it's a different question, but we can we can measure it. But there's not really good answers for that S part of ESG. You, you, you ask one person, you ask one person. And I think a large piece of that is because most organizations 
have fallen into a cognitive bias trap that they're finding a really hard time getting out of. And that cognitive bias trap is not just kind of one thing, but we've got all these cognitive biases in our brain that are at play at any any given time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We definitely have those biases for sure. And when leaders have those biases, that has pretty profound implications from a resource allocation decision. And so we think about diversity, equity, inclusion. Let's just keep, keep it there. I think a lot of leaders actually miss the opportunity there. Again, because they've put it into, a, it's, it's, it's the outcome of a program that's in a cost center. But really what inclusion is designed to do in the, in the way that we've been discussing here, I'm going to land it out. Inclusion unlocks the latent capacity within an organization so that then it can become enterprise-wide value creation. Exactly. Yeah, because if your employees aren't, if you're not being inclusive, I mean, what exactly is the point of your diversity efforts then? Because then you're just hitting numbers or, you know, whatever you're doing. But it it just, you're not going to reach that maximum potential you do if you're totally inclusive. And it's and that's a hard thing to do because we are tasking middle management usually <laughs> uh, with the job of making that happen. And so then what happens? Well, for let's just take the last 50 years, we've said middle management, you need to be about efficiency. You need to be about reinforcing hierarchy. This is your role. Um, And so now we have, you know, machine learning come along. A lot of the jobs that machine learning, they can decimate middle management, quite frankly, if, if we wanted to, but it would also decimate our economy in the process because of the way we built things out. But we're tasking people to do something that says, now we need you to coach for inclusion. We need you to uh, coach for well-being. We need you to unlock creativity. And so, oh, and by the way, we also need you to learn how to be data scientists to not only interpret the data, but also to understand all the interventions that are out there in the research from the different fields for using the data to interpret it, to do all these things we're asking you to do. That's that's so so we we have set ourselves up for an impossible task. So when we see the toxic work culture is the number one reason that people are leaving, and we see the managers are, are really you know responsible for it. No, that's not right. Managers are, are people. The systems that we have created are what is responsible for it. And the good news should be here that we created systems that did what they were designed to do. So why do we think we can't do that again now? I don't I don't understand what all this hand-wringing is about when we have the ingenuity it takes in place to get to work and, and do the thing. And, and, you know, we spend more time, I feel like, on talking about it on LinkedIn and having <laughs> another, you know, then and having more research about research than we are actually doing it because uh, all the pieces are there. You know, Teresa Mable at, at Harvard uh, Business School, she's looked at like the environmental conditions of creativity uh, for a long time. And, you know, the, whether or not uh, a novel insight by an employee or, or an employee group becomes enterprise-wide value creation depends on a few different things. But, you know, one of the things it pe- depends upon is the alignment of the motivation of the uh, group or individual group who have the novel insight, whether it's a reframe on a question or a solution, do they perceive that the motivations, their motivations are aligned with the organizations? So we don't need more research necessarily to say that this is a problem. What we need to do is lean into what the research says about how to fix it and then start implementing the things that that we do, you know, business is a very efficient problem-solving machine, and it is. It it confounds me why we're not deploying that same problem-solving capabilities to this situation at hand. I, it's it's a confounding situation to me. Now, is that part of the motivation that led you and your husband to create your nonprofit, the Ideas X Lab? No, not really. They had a different DNA behind it. Another part of my transdisciplinary um, world that I uh, have built for myself is I'm, I'm an artist and a poet. Um, 
And I do not need another study that tells me that arts have social value and arts do, because I can make a defensible argument that uh, from the beginning of time, they have been probably the one thing that's been with us <laughs> that have done all these things. So do we need to say, no, we don't. But if we just start with like, they've always done this. So what can they do? Um, that is uh, part of what was behind Ideas X Lab. Uh, ori- originally. And so over the last five years under Josh uh, and Hannah Drake's leadership, it, they, they, they've expanded and, and, and taken it in a direction that, I, that I'm just in awe of. And we can talk a little bit about that later. But the original DNA there was I had a PhD in game theory, who was the chair of the board for an arts organization in New York, come to me back in 2009. And he said, um, and importantly, he was he was not he was European, and that that it's important because he is he navigates through a lot of cultures in in his own personal narrative, and always had. But he says, I think uh, I think from what I see that a lot of the U.S. is getting this um, arts thing wrong and how they're advocating for the sector, because if it's only going to be about Arts are a better version of this. Arts are a a cheaper version of that. Um, Arts are, you know, um, a nice thing to have at the largesse of kind of philanthropy or so forth. He he said that's really kind of missing the point of what, to him, what arts had always been about. He said the, the artist has always been there across time in different cultures in ways that kind of operate if you've ever read uh, lewis hyde's trickster makes the world so that operates kind of a little bit like along that that trickster model of of moving societies past status quo uh and moving you know because status quo is a very seductive thing to, to stay in i just saw um Daniel Pink posted something uh, on LinkedIn yesterday, a new economist study that came out that was looking at the economist rule of thumb when it's uh, do something that changes the status quo or stay in status quo. The economist rule of thumb is always to choose the thing that changes the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so I think that artists have unique capabilities to, to do this. And starting after... After World War II, we we started doing to the arts profession what we've done to other professions too. You know, it's 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 was more about the skills and the production of the product, as opposed to the training of tra- you know critical thinking and uh, conceptual conceptualization of of challenges and problems and and doing those types of things. And and so what he was saying the to me is like. It is always so valuable to him throughout the years to have conversations with artists who lean into that conceptual piece of the world because it helps him understand himself better and in his his things better. And so that conversation led to us writing. It was it was what actually started Ideas X Lab. Uh, and we started with a hypothesis that said. Artists are incredible agents of innovation, but they are not in innovation spaces that we technically call innovation spaces when it comes to private sector. So what if we developed ways for for creating artist innovation residencies inside of companies that allowed and, and then facilitated the process to place the creative mind of really high level conceptual artists, great thinkers in these innovation teams, not to make art, because as an artist, I know art always gets made, but in but but put them, you know, as part of the team working on an innovation project that's already set out by company fill in the blank. Oh wow. And how's that been going in terms of working with companies? This was in 2014, and it went it went great. We also did the same thing, the same idea with social innovation with community organizations, and so the the community organization social piece really is where the direction that Ideas X Lab kept going down, and then and then rightly so, it really took into kind of using um, 
arts and arts modalities to pr- to, to promote public health, anti-racism, a lot of core work that, that needed to be done. And that Josh and Hannah have done a beautiful job of uh, over the last um, five, six years of, of moving that forward. I'm just talking about the original stuff. So it's fascinating to me that today we are starting to hear about more like artist type residencies in companies. But when you dig into them, it still is more about the PR value of the work, or it's about doing a mural in Facebook's corporate offices. And so it's really missing the opportunity for innovation. Uh, It's missing it in a pretty profound way. However, there are those organizations that are still doing this. I think in 2014, we were certainly a little bit ahead of the curve of where that people were ready to even wrap their minds around what we were saying. You were a little before your time, it sounds like. Well, I, I want not say a little bit before time, but, but certainly not in the right, um, not in the right context or with the right audience to to bring the idea to kind of fruition um, at the time. Um, but if you look at like CERN, the Super Collider program in, in Switzerland, they've had some very compelling arts and science residencies that have been going on for years and years. And, uh, you know, the the artists and the um, the physicists and so forth both come out better on the other side because CERN has also uh, found an intellectual honesty in leaning into the opportunity for innovation uh, through these. And that's important because if both sides, whether it's coming from the creativity and artist side or the creativity and corporate science side, if the intention is not for both to engage in expanding kind of this the sphere of inquiry for both people or both sides, it's probably going to one will be one will just be in the service to the other one. And I'm not sure that that's going to get to the place that I'm talking about. Um, but if there's that intellectual honesty in co-creating something together that the other cannot create by themselves. Wow. Amazing things happen in CERN. We've seen that there, you know, and this is also it's not really kind of a, a new idea either, because going back to uh, Bell Labs, they had in the in the 1960s, they had the experiments in art and technology with some of the biggest artists of the time. Um, so we have models and reasons to believe and not just believe to know that this works, but it requires a uh, it requires a couple of things that I think make private sector companies uncomfortable. Number one, it requires a, uh, a humility um, that markets typically don't reward le- uh, leadership for uh, in terms of, you know, we like confidence in, a, in you know, in our face, confidence and we express it in like, you know, it's, it's the, it's that, it's that American, it's the cowboy sitting on the, you know, the edge of the Canyon on his horse with a cigarette dangling out of his lips at the sunset, you know, that, that, that's kind of this vestige we've all been acculturated with over time. And so that's what confidence looks like, you know, even like this whole notion of, uh, of of the celebration of failure in 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 the innovation space um, is is a, a piece of that the cultural humility to realize that you only know what your lived experience has allowed you to know is a incredibly valuable thing if you're an innovator uh, because it keeps you in a present space and keeps you aware that there are opportunities that are already available to you that you may be missing. And you can only find out what those are if you have others that have different lived experiences and skill sets that can help ask different questions and so forth. So that that cultural humility is a thing that we do not reward most leaders in the private sector for in the marketplace. No, absolutely not. The second thing it requires that these this kind of to expand this kind of space requires in these uh, residency kind of models and corporations is that it requires a little bit of messiness. (laughs) Because whenever you bring 
two different groups together who have their completely different way, uh, unique ways of talking about the same thing. That is a that developing some shared language together is a Venn diagram coming to, together. Developing some of that shared language in the middle takes time and has to you have to get a little messy and do it. And again, markets do not reward leaders for being messy. They want assurance. They want security. You know, and like even I was just in a conversation here in the last couple of of weeks with a top executive, and. Their training is in a, a field of the science sciences that is very, you know, this plus this causes this. Yeah, A plus B equals C type of thing. One plus one equals two. Yeah. So so it's that it's that type of science. Yeah. Plus it's in an plus it's in a type of science that is in a corporate space that is defined over the last 40 years by efficiency. How what's the quickest way from getting to point A to point B? And so it was this conversation was uh, a reminder to me that these are these kind of orientations to the world are learned behaviors. That if you're in a field of science that is about this plus this equals this, and your that field of science is characterized in the private sector in the market by a area of the market that is about efficiency. Your entire orientation to the world is going to be through that lens. And when you have, you know, 40 years, 30 years in the, in a field of being trained to think like that, it's exhausting to go beyond that. Exactly. Yeah. And then you add on top of that, COVID, racial justice reckonings, inflation, pending recession, it like all of this ambiguity on top of that, people are exhausted right now. And that's real. And to pretend like that that's not a real thing that's impacting our innovation processes is a, um, is, is a fallacy that I think is going to be um, what takes some companies down. Uh, You know, like the, we, there's several examples that, um, that we can all point to, you know, in the past 20 years of people who believe that, the way that their orientation to the world was the was the right one, and they just need to stay to it and double down. Those companies don't exist anymore. Exactly. Yeah, there's a long list of those you could probably look at. Long I mean, list. one that comes to mind for me immediately is Kodak. You know, there's one that you know was around for a long period of time and and just would not get outside of what it knew. It it stayed the course and didn't evolve, and it is uh, a shell of what it once was. Kodak. Blockbuster. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I might even go so far as to as to say we might be having this conversation around Meta in a decade from now. So, you know, all all of these things that we do in the innovation space in the private sector exist within something else. They don't. They're not islands to themselves. People do not check in, uh, check who they are uh, when they log onto the computer network to sign in for their job or cross the threshold of the company door. They bring all the stuff that's happening out in society with them over that threshold. Absolutely. Well, Theo, I wanted to go back and ask you a little bit more about the Imaginator Academy. And um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the work that it's doing? And I know you're you're focusing on the Great Resignation as well. So tell us a little bit about what you're what you're doing and and the work behind uh, the Great Resignation. So the Imaginator Academy is set up as a cultural analytics strategy and futurist innovation hub. Uh, we're based in a university, but we're characterized by our work in engagement with the private sector. So the private sector is our is our main audience. Uh, the business community specifically uh, is our main audience. And with the cultural analytics and cultural strategy uh, that we focus on, we bring together um, entrepreneurs, companies, artists, creatives, innovators, scientists, change really change makers of all kinds. And the goal there is to is to take all of the signals that are available to us in what we can measure, 
Uh, right now, we're running a national workforce census measuring creativity and belonging in the workforce as antecedent conditions for getting to a place where we can actually predict innovation uh, that is getting ready to pop that people may not uh, see coming. Um, and so we pull all of that together into kind of this culture intelligence platform. And that cultural intelligence platform is to solve business challenges. And so an example of what that kind of looks like is um, if you kind of were just to kind of kind of look at the work from a, a arm's length kind of way, you'd, you'd think, because we do, we use a to do a lot of our data collection right now, we do use surveys, you would think, oh, that's like a culture survey that organizations do. And it's not, and it's not like that at all because uh, culture surveys in organizations often tend to kind of be a, a statistic, a grouping of statistical averages. Uh, and what those statistical averages will tell you uh, and the present kind of present psychological state, right? So it's looking at what is the present psychological state of the organization and how does that uh, compare to kind of who we have been over the last, you know, 10 years of our history because we, we bring all that forward with us. What we're actually doing is we're not measuring just an average around one metric or, or another. What we're doing is putting together an understanding of how do people's identities, because none of us are just one thing. Uh, you know, it may be uh, my part of my identity as a queer man in America. It may be my identity as uh, somebody who is born and raised in Appalachia. It may be my part of my identity that informs how I make meaning, create value uh, based on my neurodiversity. So there's different pieces of my identity that I lead with and I cipher through whatever I'm experiencing, just like it, just like everybody else does. And so we try to build these identity constructs that allows people to kind of tell us who they, how they understand themselves in the world. And then through that, we then connect to kind of two areas that we call creative, creativity capital and belonging capital that drive everything. Um, and in the creativity and belonging capital uh, areas pull from organizational uh, psychology, neuroscience, management research, entrepreneurship research, diffusion of innovation, uh, cultural psychology. So it pulls from a lot of different areas and we pull all those together into one metric. Again, putting that data bridge in place between culture change and innovation. And so with that, identity question, then we're able to understand where is the latent capacity within an organization or in an ecosystem or a network or a city already? And then what are the strategies based upon this specific group of people that could unlock that latent capacity most quickly in order to get some of those shorter term wins that allows a group to build social capital to do some of the longer term things that it's it's trying to do. An example of that in the data looks like this. So when we ask for, oh, let's just take um, economic class question. We say, how do you and your family, how are you defined family, see yourself? And then the choices, you know, range from kind of low income all the way up to high income. But there's no dollar figures that are put there like you might see in normal surveys. Oh, interesting. In normal surveys, it, it asks you if you fall within a range, like zero to 10,000, yeah. 11,000 to 25. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a federal government question. Exactly. <laughs> what we're interested in, what we're measuring there is perception of available resources, because on the back end, that perception of available resources in the creativity sciences research is a one of the indicators of how you unlock latent capacity, create new value in the world, which taps into the innovation side. It relates to hope research, which is, and hope is not optimism. Optimism is a belief. I believe that in the future things are going to work out. I don't. It doesn't require any action for me. So I believe hope is me we're measuring the potential for agentic action. And so that economic class question, we're assessing perception of available resources because we know on the back end is connected to pieces of the hope research 
and it's connected to pieces of the creativity research. And by combining those three signals together on the back end, then we've got some idea around this culture intelligence piece that I'm talking about. That is it. That is data. That is not just a data point, but actually is uh, 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 intelligence that can be acted upon and strategies built around, and then measured pre and post and all those types of things. That's really amazing. It's very, very fascinating. And so, what what's your research showing? Can you share some of it with us? Do you have some snippets of uh, information you can share? Got a, a million of them. Uh, in fact, we're getting ready to have uh, in October in Denver uh, our first Imaginator Summit. And at that Imaginator Summit, it's going to be a working summit uh, where we've invited uh, corporate leaders, we've invited scientists, we've invited artists, we've invited um, um, academics all to come together to share some of these things out. Uh, with them on the quantitative side. All the work that that I do is using the quantitative to guide the things that we do. Most people, when they hear words like I typically use, they think qualitative. And there is a qualitative is hugely important, but that's not what I'm doing. Uh, Me and my team, we're we're about quantitative work. Uh, So not to... um, not to give too much away, uh, right in right before the summit here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, right, right before the summit. But what, but what I can tell you, uh, one of the things that I can tell you is this: that, that there's a couple of things that we we see across the board. Um, let's take curiosity. There's a there, here's a great example. So when we measure curiosity, there's a there's two components of curiosity that we're measuring. One is a social component, one's a, an emotion component. But with the curiosity in almost every single sector that we've ever done this work in, we found something very common. Out of 50 plus different kind of possible combinations of these curiosity metrics, when we combine them with some of the other things that we look at, We see most organizations have nine out of 10 employees with the same four or five curiosity quantitative phenotypes. Interesting. It's pretty homogeneous then. Bingo. So what we take away for the listeners from that is when we talk about hiring for culture fit, that's a great example that, that shows that indeed we have been very successful at hiring for culture fit in organizations. But here's the kicker. If that's great, if nothing is changing in your external operating environment, but if we can kind of agree that one of the definitions of innovation is being able to respond to opportunities and threats as they emerge in your external operating environment and your external operating environment is changing and shifting. Oh, I don't know, because of pandemics, because of like you know, because of the acceleration of technology, despite very well-meaning, intellectually honest efforts, most organizations just don't have the bench to go to to be able to think and act differently because they've hired for historical culture fit in a fast-changing environment. And so when we look at what makes a healthy ecosystem out in nature, it is deep biodiversity. And that deep biodiversity, if you just look at the rhythms of nature, nature self-manages creative tension beautifully. Yet we have often focused in our organizations and our human systems, especially in the last 20, 25 years, just on measuring the strengths. Let's just do the stuff, do the stuff you're good at. Well, what that what we've sacrificed in that process, and there's a lot of good stuff that came out of that, but what we've sacrificed in the process is the ability to build a paradox mindsets and the ability to train our management and our systems to manage that creative tension productively to an end. We, we try to make every, we want frictionless organizations. 
And so there's a cost to that, right? And and now and now we're seeing it. And so that is just one example uh, that that we see coming up in our in our culture signals uh, around this that is going to have to be kind of you know looked at and, and corrected. And it, it it's not that the same four or five curiosity uh, phenotypes are present in every single organization, but it's that every organization has around four or five of their own. Um, that are, that are represented there. And that's fascinating because then how do you get those organizations to change? Because everybody thinks alike and is homogeneous and, and, and trying to get them to act differently outside of what they're used to is going to be interesting to see how that's ultimately addressed. Uh, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a challenge yeah. uh, with leadership that doesn't know itself how change actually happens. So if you like think about Rogers and the diffusion of innovation and kind of that work, um, the probably the one and only time you'll ever hear me talk about bell curves <laughs> uh, is in that diffusion of innovation. Cause what, what we tend to do, if you, cause so if you conceptualize the bell curve, you conceptualize change, innovation or, or social change, whatever have you, and here's the bell curve. Well, on that front end of the bell curve, you've got around, you know, two, four, five percent, maybe five percent of people who are futurists. They are looking at horizons that that are are not even discernible or seeable yet. And that's where their focus is, is like what's out there. Coming right behind them, you've got probably 12, 15 percent that are a group of people, companies, scientists, artists, people who are motivated by change itself. I often find a lot of those people also come out of historically marginalized um, uh, identities and communities because change has been the thing they've had to uh, do in order to see a world that looks more like um how they understand them themselves in it, right? You know, again, going back to my own experience, being impractical may have been the only practical thing I had going for me for a lot of, a lot of years. Because if I just accepted what was presented to me, it was not presented in ways that were designed for somebody who was queer and neurodiverse. I do have, you know, the extreme privilege of of, of being white and being perceived as 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 male in society. Um, but what you can see in somebody else is not all that there is to any one human being, but those people who are motivated by change, they are people that are also, they're working with those futurist ideas, but they're motivated by change. They're interested in implementing, trying to see what they can do with them. So then most leaders get to that big piece of the bell curve in the middle and they say, wow, there's 60 to 70% of the, the total population. And if we can just get the messaging right, if we can just get the communications wording and challenge right and get this, pe- this group of people on board with it, that's what we need to be doing. Except that rarely <laughs> is shown to ever work. And the reason is because in the middle there, if you take that big piece of the middle of the bell curve, you split it down the middle, that back end, they are people who are more motivated by uh, risk of loss. And so they there's nothing that can be offered that's going to bring them on board. But all the but we see in the research that they come along when it becomes inconvenient for them to still be on that back end of the big part of the bell curve. And you know, I think about like my parents' adoption of the iPhone is a great example of that. It was a four-year conversation that went nowhere <laughs> until they couldn't get certain things on their flip phone. And then 45 minutes in, in the Apple store with somebody who wasn't their son t- telling them about it. Oh, we love this thing now. So four years got condensed to a 45-minute <laughs> kind of thing. It was, it was great. So then there's that front end of the big part of the middle, right? So leaders say, well, okay, let's assume that that back end is like that. We can get that. But on that front end, well, clearly, those are people who are, want to be part of kind of this this movement forward in the future, and that's true. Except they are risk averse. They want somebody to de-risk the thing being proposed, and when they perceive that that thing has been de-risked enough, 
the research shows they're going to raise their hand and say, yes, I'm in too. I've always, I've always been here, right? And so that's not a communications challenge. That's a perception challenge that they are using their identity and their lived experiences to make those determinations for themselves. And so it is those people that we call in the imaginator zone, that, that 12 to 15%, right behind the futurist and right before that, that big part of the middle. Those are the people that are de-risking change and innovation um, for that for that next group to come in come in behind and so uh, the imaginator academy focuses on who are those companies who are those scientists who are those um, researchers and artists that's who we are identifying and working with and then after the summit we'll put all of these signals that we're getting in the data into uh, some uh, great prototyping with companies uh, testing out what we were calling the uh, Denver algorithm. And the Denver algorithm just simply signals that Denver uh, is our economic uh, culture lab uh, for implementing this work. Again, going back to some of the things we talked about earlier, why, why Denver matters. Um, and those prototypes will then get put in place using the data. And again, we're going to be working on whatever the objectives and KPIs and strategies that the organizations are already working on. That's what that's what our focus is going to be. But we're going to be providing context, cultural analytics, things that they don't have available to them in the way that that we can provide uh, to accelerate their their innovation agendas. And those will go in Q1, Q2 of next year, and then uh, fall of next year. We're working on a really compelling um, national storytelling experiment. I can make a pretty defensible scientific argument that stories are the only thing that actually changes the world. Uh, in today's world, data makes the stories believable and investable. And so uh, in addition to the prototyping labs, which will kind of be creativity and science residencies inside of these inside of these companies, using this analytics uh, and, the, and, and in tandem with all of our transdisciplinary research team, um, this national storytelling experiment will be designed to shift the narrative of fill in the blank. We don't know what it's going to be yet of, uh, toward a more human side of the future of work. And then using the different fields of, of research that are a part of the Imaginator Research Network, we'll be able to uh, show what the consumption of that media has been and then be able to make some really uh, uh, hopefully insightful and uh, actionable arguments about if we were to think about the future in this way as opposed to how we're thinking about it now. Here's the impacts of it on public health. Here's the impacts of it on, on economic growth, on human flourishing, because in our work, human flourishing is the antecedent condition to economic, um, to economic growth. It's not economic growth to support human flourishing. We, we've completely reversed, you know, re reversed the order on that um, because, again, the science told us to. Well, Theo, I mean, it's, it's amazing work that the Imaginator Academy is doing, and we look forward to learning more about this national storytelling experiment that you have coming on. And as the podcast comes to the close, I, I did want to ask you um, for the Imaginator Academy, if you could have any three wishes granted for it, what would those be? I don't have wishes, but I do have hopes. And again, hopes being defined by autonomy, confidence, relatedness, agency in the world. Um, and my hopes would be that the Imaginator Academy helps companies who are ready to, to who, are, who are already on the journey and are just looking for that extra kind of idea, that extra strategy, that extra uh, uh, piece of support that can move them to the next place. If someone does not believe in this work and they don't believe that human flourishing is an ASC condition innovation, I am not going to try to convince them that it is. But for those who are interested, my hope is that we help them to overcome the inertia, whether it be psychological inertia or whether it be organizational inertia, the inertia that is coming along with how culture change is happening or not happening, I guess is maybe better uh, right now. 
so that would be one piece that we can get them unstuck. The second piece is that we uh, provide um, that that kind of um, extra that that multiplier effect in the efforts they're already making around their physical, mental, and economic um, change efforts that they're trying to make happen. You know, one of the things that we see in in the research is that freedom is a multiplier effect across the board, no matter what we're talking about creativity, if we're talking about innovation, economics, freedom is a multiplier effect. So whatever effort they're putting in, that we can help them to build that out uh, in a way that's going to be most meaningful for them. And then the third thing is that we introduce the ability for companies to have emotion. Um, And I'm not talking about purpose-driven marketing. I'm not talking about branding that you know leans into kind of a um the psychology of happiness or something like that i'm talking about recognizing that most of the most essential industries that we have still and will have a human component to them for a for the first for the rest of my professional life now the things that come along you know, think about healthcare. I mean, you know, like I, I look at worksite wellness programs. We've been doing those for 30 plus years. It was about $12 billion industry even before COVID. They don't, they, they don't work. They, they, they do a couple of things. They give, they activate a cognitive bias for a leader that what they're doing something that is working and, um, then they may help with recruiting, but they certainly don't help with retention or deliver or delivering any of the core promises works like wellness. And then COVID hits, and now we're applying all of our VC funding to tech solutions to scale up something that there's little evidence that that works. Um, that's because there is we we've taken the human being out of it. We've we've isolated an employee as if they're just an employee, and if we can only manage them as an employee, that's going to do the trick. But I, I think that by introducing emotion, what I what I'm t- really talking about here is is innovation, um, because the more we lean into the emotion of what it means to be human and the experience of being human in these systems that we've built, if we look for it, there are opportunities for innovation happening all around us. And one of the top cited articles of Academy of Management last decade, one of its findings looked at something very interesting. If an organization's external stakeholder messaging, and we saw a lot of that, for instance, during the summer of 2020 with Black Lives Matter. If an organization's external messaging to external stakeholders, it if it is out of sync with the internal stakeholder experience that that messaging is about, what an organization has actually done is shrink its innovation capacity. If we were leading into kind of what it means to be human inside of these systems, we would not be doing that. We, we would intuitively uh, be able to start engineering ways that helped us to uh, unlock that capacity and, and use it for innovation. And so the third hope that I have is that those companies that are already doing this, that they kick butt and just become the gold standard for how things get done. And that is that, you know, like turn, I'm 52. When I turned 50, time started operating a little bit different, differently for me. Not better, not worse, just just different. I grew up in a capitalist system. I, you know, probably consider myself a little bit of a of a bleeding heart capitalist. <laughs> uh, it's it's what I know, but I don't believe that being being American means being mean and greedy. I, I don't believe that's who we are. And by when in that hope three, the companies that succeed, uh, the introducing of emotion, the introducing of humanity as the as the antecedent conditions, I've never seen anything in science that tells me that anything but that that is what works. Number one, and number two is, my God, don't we need to take a little bit of a different approach somewhere? I mean, by any metric that you look at, our 
mental health and well-being is going down. We're losing our, our footing. We can't talk to each other. I, yeah, you can't have a difference of opinion without people hating one another or doing even worse. It's really become deeply disturbing. It has. And, and, and the good news here is going back to your original question, the Great Resignation. I don't think the Great Resignation is anything but Americans doing what they've always done, and that we we're people. We've always been people of courage, and we've always been people of imagination. It's what built this country. Have we succeeded to our highest ideals? Absolutely not. Nowhere close. And yet we keep going. And so I don't think the Great Resignation is the thing. I think. It's it, what we're seeing is Americans showing new signs of life as people of courageous imagination. And that is what we have built our country on. That's what brought us to where we are kind of in the world. And so I think the more we lean into doing that thing that we know how to do, you know, there's there's reason to hope that, that's a it's going to be a maybe a tough sell for a lot of people, though. Yeah, absolutely. But you have to keep hope alive. That's for sure. Well, Theo, I can't thank you enough for your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, they can reach me uh, at uh, theodore.edmonds at ucdenver.edu. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Theo. It's been great to have this opportunity to talk to you. You too, Lisa. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.